We return once again to our verse-by-verse study of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We will be looking at verses 14 through 22 under the heading, The Danger of Divided Loyalty. To prepare you for what the Spirit has for us in this text, let me tell you a little story. I'm sure you will agree that many times God gives us life experiences that really illustrate spiritual truths. Sometimes we may not realize it at the time, but we do later on. Such was the case when I was living in British Columbia. I recall a mountain ridge that I would frequent on horseback, and I had been warned not to take a certain game trail that seemed very obvious because that trail would eventually take you down to a shale slide. And if you know anything about the mountains, shale slides are very dangerous. They can be fun if you know what's at the bottom of the slide. But if you don't know what's at the bottom of the slide and you start sliding, you can be in trouble. And this particular slide would take you down about a hundred yards and then all of a sudden it was a cliff. But it seemed like the appropriate way to go. And to go a different way meant you had to go around a canyon and it was much harder climb, but that was the way you needed to go. But I remember the first time I was there and I saw that, I thought, boy, this seems like the best way to go because I need to get right over there but it was a very dangerous place. In fact, there had been at least two people that I had heard of who had lost their life because they started down that wrong trail. And how often God warns us of the shale slides in our life, right? Trails that seem so appealing, but yet they shift beneath our feet and you begin to slide and you have no way of stopping. Some of you are perhaps on one of those trails as I speak. Perhaps some of you have already slipped off the side of the cliff. I'm intrigued with the amount of time the Apostle Paul has spent warning against the danger of abusing our Christian liberties, of not exercising self-control and self-denial, resulting in disqualification from effective service in Christ. He's essentially spent three chapters. So this is a matter of great importance, and yet for most, his warnings will go unheeded. And countless Christians will end up operating in the flesh rather than the spirit and bear no real fruit for the glory of God. It's so easy for us to ignore what he asked us to do and Chapter 9, to exercise self-control in all things, to run in such a way as not without aim, to box in such a way as not beating the air, to discipline our body and make it our slave so that after we preach to others, we ourselves will not be disqualified. Like ancient Israel that he described in the first 13 verses of chapter 10, who craved evil things like idolatry and immorality and were prone to to try God's patience, to see how much they could get away with. And then they grumbled against God's provisions. 
And obviously, this was an issue that plagued the church in Corinth. And frankly, all churches, including ours, an issue that plagues your pastor. And if you're honest, it plagues you. We can all see ourselves here. We are inclined to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. We can become overconfident in our spirituality and ignore the dangers that are all around us. And we end up choosing to live our life on the very edge of that which dishonors the Lord. Therefore, verse 12 says, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. And that's the core message of this whole chapter. But he goes on to say in verse 13 that no temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. So encouraging, isn't it? A message of love and mercy on his behalf to us. But then he adds another warning. And this is where we will begin today. A summary warning that encompasses all that he's been saying and all that he will say. Therefore, verse 14, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Isn't it interesting? He just told us what he will do for us. But now he tells us what we must do. And he is going to expand upon this by asking and answering three questions that get to the very heart of his warnings and frankly pierce to the very heart of each one of us. And through his inspired reasoning, we are compelled to apprehend these essential truths concerning the matter of idolatry. Now, let me remind you that idolatry is far more than worshiping some little fat Buddha in the corner, right? I hope you understand that. It's the preoccupation with or the worship of anything other than the one true God. And it can manifest itself in many ways. Idols demand our affections, our allegiance, our time, our money. And specific idols can, buy, can be identified by the sins that they require. For example, the Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 3, 5, that greed amounts to idolatry. We're also told in 1 Corinthians 5 that a covetous man is called an idolater. Referring to a man who is eager to gain more and more. He's never satisfied. And he wants to gain what belongs to others. In fact, Job tells us in Job 31, beginning in verse 24, If I have put my confidence in gold and called find gold my trust, if I have gloated because my wealth was great, and because my hand had secured so much, if I have looked at the sun when it shone, or the moon going in splendor, and my heart becomes secretly enticed, and my hand threw a kiss from my mouth, that too would have been an iniquity calling for judgment, for I would have denied God above. Dear Christian, please understand, whenever we distort or trivialize the character and the perfections of God who has gone to such great lengths to reveal himself in his word, 
Whenever we desire anything more than him, whenever we recreate him to our own liking, we are committing the blasphemous sin of idolatry. Idolatry is just worshiping false gods, which can include our body, our beauty, sports, occupation, education, ideas, philosophies, habits, possessions, television, smartphones, social media, which is the perfect platform for fools to pontificate their folly and exalt themselves. I was reading the other day, according to research done by Social Media Today, quote, the amount of time people spend on social media is constantly increasing. Teens now spend up to nine hours a day on social platforms. And the majority of that time is on mobile devices. They went on to add the average person will spend nearly two hours on social media every day which translates to a total of five years and four months spent over a lifetime. They also added, right now, the average person will spend seven years and eight months watching television in a lifetime. Now, compare that, dear friends, to what we are commanded to do, to keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father, to set your mind on the things above, not on the things of earth. The most glorious and supreme commandment is for us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves. And certainly the idols of television and smartphones and social media are perhaps Satan's greatest weapons to make sure proper worship never happens. These are just classic examples of idolatry, and frankly, examples that most People won't pay any attention to. In fact, some of you will ignore this. I would hasten to say that if you were to ask the the average Christian, if you could have one or the other, which would you choose? Your smartphone or your Bible? I believe most would opt for the smartphone. And it's sad, isn't it, with a smartphone? And by the way, they're wonderful devices, and they can do great things. Social media can be a a wonderful way to proclaim the gospel, keep up with friends. But it is also very dangerous. And you think about it, especially with our young people, they're never alone with that little phone in their pocket. Never alone. Always in contact with their friends. Never an opportunity to set it aside And spend time alone with the Lord their God. To spend time in his word. And even to spend time meditating on that word and so forth. So these types of idols can eliminate private worship. Which is so essential to spiritual growth and effective service to Christ. Now, what the spirit of God is telling us in this text. Is that often, unbeknownst to us. Unwitting idolatry will do three things. Let me give them to you, and then I'll elaborate on them. Number one, it places us in spiritual union with demons. Number two, it subjects us to a supernatural force controlled by demons. And finally, it offends the Lord our God. Let's look closely at what 
the Spirit says through his inspired apostle, verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. The idea here is flee through the secret passageway that the Lord has provided. In verse 13, it's the way out, he says. And the imagery there is that of, of troops that are trapped in some kind of a boxed canyon. And they don't think they have any way out. And suddenly they realize there's kind of a secret passageway up and around. So he's saying here, take it, dear friend. Flee from idolatry. Don't you dare associate yourself with or be deceived by anyone or anything that distracts you from worshiping the Lord your God and promotes those things that he abhors. And that passageway, by the way, will always include the power of the Spirit working through his word, working through his people. Dear friends, idols that enslave our heart will bring us to ruin, but they cannot compete with the supernatural power of the Spirit of God and his word in our heart. And that's what it takes, a decisive commitment to exercise self-denial and self-control and to walk humbly by the Spirit. So Paul now is appealing to the minds of the Corinthians. Remember, the Corinthians prided themselves in their philosophical reasoning. Remember our study early on in 1 Corinthians And so he says to them in verse 15, I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Again, remember, the issue at hand is abusing Christian liberty that can lead to disqualification. And this was done primarily with the Corinthians by flirting with the idolatrous, immoral culture that influenced everything that they did, including their workplace environment with the gods and goddesses that were a part of all of that. And so in their overconfidence, they had convinced themselves that continued exposure to these pagan feasts and celebrations would really have no lasting influence on them. And Paul is saying, you're a fool if you believe that. Now notice his argument, verse 16, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ. Fascinating statement. And here, as we're going to see, Paul is warning how, number one, unwitting idolatry places us in spiritual union with demons. Let me explain this. It's not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ. The cup of blessing is a reference to the third cup that was given at the end of the Passover feast. And it expressed thanksgiving for God's provision and for his deliverance. And we know Jesus gave this cup to his disciples at the end of the final Passover meal in in the upper room on the eve of his crucifixion as a symbol of his shed blood for sin, an expression of the supreme cup of blessing that he was, the new covenant in his blood that provided the final sacrifice for sin, for forgiveness and deliverance from sin and death. But notice in this, quote, cup of blessing, which we bless, There is a sharing, he says, in the blood of Christ. Sharing, koinonia, participation, a fellowship with, a partnership with the person of Christ, our Savior. 
So when he gave the bread and the wine to his disciples, he was inviting them as he invites us when we participate in communion to enjoy intimate communion and fellowship with him. Like we do when we have a family dinner around the table, right? We all know what that's like. And when we pass the bread and the cup to each other, realize that there is a sacred drama that is unfolding. It's more than a mere ritual, isn't it? It's more than just something symbolic. There's something profound and spiritual and transcendent that's occurring. Our our souls are stirred up with holy affections and gratitude and, and longings to know more of Christ and to celebrate all that he's done for us. We become overcome with, 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 with an over, overpowering awareness of what Christ has done, what he is doing, what he will do on our behalf. And certainly he asks us to do this in remembrance of him, right? It's as though the Lord gave us a keepsake. You know what keepsakes are? We've all got them, don't we? Some of them may not be worth much to anyone, but to us, they're priceless, right? I've got little things that Nancy has given me over the years. You you have those things, things that our parents gave us, our children. They're priceless to us. And that's what's going on here when we participate in communion. So in the passing of the cup of blessing, we are participating in the magnificent benefits of the atonement. We are saying, oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for your shed blood on the cross. Thank you that you helped me to see that and the burden of my sin rolled away, as the old hymn says. Thank you that there's no condemnation now, now because I'm united to you and my heart is, is, is overflowing with praise for the undeserved blessings that I have in Christ. Folks, who among us who truly know and love Christ can possibly partake of the cup without singing, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And as we pass the tray, we are saying to each other, because of what Christ has done, I am not only in fellowship with him, but I am in fellowship with you, right? There's this partnering that's being played out. So the bread and the wine symbolize the sharing with Christ and each other, as well as our devotion to him and to each other. So communion is, is, is a sacred celebration of our common oneness in Christ. And I find it interesting how well-positioned this particular statement is with respect to the Corinthians who, as we will see later on, were making a mockery of the Lord's table. They were eating and drinking judgment unto themselves, not to mention the ongoing dabbling in idolatry and immorality by participating in the feasts and the idol worship stuff, which, by the way, is not all that different from some of the things that we can participate in some of the conventions we go to in the workplace environment and all the stuff that can be a part of that, some of the workplace parties we attend, and you you get the idea. Now, while the blood represents Christ's death, his body represents his life. 
uh, a human life that was sacrificed for the salvation of all human beings who placed their trust in him. Therefore, Paul says this at the end of verse 16, is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Answer is obviously yes. Then he goes on and says, since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of this one bread. So this one bread or this one loaf is a beautiful picture of the corporate solidarity or oneness that we all enjoy as being part of this mystical body, the body of Christ. And indeed, we all share or participate in the body of Christ. It's a magnificent thought. It's interesting that in the early church and in many traditions to this day, a single loaf was passed along from one person to the next. And a person would break off a little piece, and that would be the part that they would eat in remembrance of him. And it is said that they would say to one another as they passed the tray, the loaf, we passed the tray, they passed the loaf, they would say, until he comes, until he comes. Now, We also have one loaf, by the way. I don't know if you ever see it up there. The ladies have the precise recipe for the unleavened bread, and it's all in a round loaf. And the men come uh, during one of the songs, and they have sanitized hands, and they break it, and they put it in the little trays. We don't pass a loaf because some of your kids would take half the loaf if it came to them. And who knows what kind of germs would be passed along, right? So we do it a little bit differently, but it's the same idea. All of that one loaf symbolizes the one body, how we are united to Christ and each other. At the end of verse 17, he says, for we all partake of the one bread. By the way, the word we, the words we and the word all in Greek means the whole of us. We're all doing this. We're part of this this drama of oneness. And he gives an example in verse 18. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? Now remember, the the Israelites would bring their sacrifice and, and the priests would burn some of it on the flames. They would get to keep some of it for themselves. And then the rest was given to the worshiper for their consumption. So once again, there's a picture of the corporate solidarity with Christ and with one another. So the point here is there is not only a, a, a horizontal, but also a vertical participation that occurs. An illustration of the spiritual union that we all experience because of Christ, who is the source of it all. Now, this is the basis of Paul's argument in his warning against unwitting idolatry. You see, even as the Lord's Supper is a sharing or a participation or a partnering with Christ and each other, so too there is a sharing that occurs whenever you participate in the pagan feasts or anything that is idolatrous, whether you realize it or not. Folks, don't think for one minute that you can associate with, much less participate in the idolatrous practices of people that, frankly, hate Christ 
and somehow remain unscathed by the demonic influence that is going on that you may not even see, that you may not even be aware of. Beloved, there is a, there is a malevolent, sinister, deceptive, driving force behind all forms of idolatry, especially idolatrous acts of worship that distort or deny the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, that kind of idolatry is found in many ostensibly evangelical churches. You can see this kind of idolatry and read about it in some of the best-selling books at your local Christian bookstore. It's tragic. In fact, the majority of the so-called worship services you, you see on TV and much of these popular Christian books fall into this category. Let me give you some examples. I, I was just dealing with this uh, this week. How can anyone possibly believe that Jesus died to make us healthy and wealthy? How can anybody read the word and come up with that? How can anybody possibly believe that God condones and even encourages homosexuality and same-sex marriage? How could anyone possibly believe that Jesus did not die to satisfy the just wrath of God and be the propitiation for our sin? Because after all, that would be cosmic child abuse, right? That would be a wicked father punishing his son for something that he did not commit. But rather, Jesus died as an example of self-sacrificing love that remained faithful to God, even in the midst of great trials. How can anybody possibly believe those things? You can't do that unless there is a sinister driving force behind it all. And we know that when people turn away from the truth, as Paul told Timothy, they will turn aside unto, the, unto myths. Turn away from the truth in the active voice. You deliberately choose to do that. But turn aside to myths is in the passive voice, which means the myths will take you over and you won't even realize it. There's something wicked and malevolent behind all of that. That's the point. It's so easy to be deceived. These are the heresies, by the way, of, of false teachers who have embedded themselves in the church. Jude speaks of this in Jude 4. He says, they have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 12, he says, these are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. And Paul said in 1 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 1, but the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. The Greek grammar indicates that it's teachings by demons. These false teachers receive their information, maybe even unwittingly, but they receive that information from demons. That's the point. And then it goes on to say, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Folks, remember, Jesus calls Satan the father of lies. And those lies began in the garden, right? 
We read in the word that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He opposes God's work. He perverts God's word. He hinders God's servants. He's the ruler of the demons. He's the ruler of this world. He is the God of this world, the prince and the power of the air. He's our adversary. He's a slanderer. And Jesus said in his parable to the, to the sower that he is the one who is extremely clever. It's unimaginable how clever. And he says in, he says in Luke eight twelve that the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they may not believe and be saved. And folks, may I add that Satan is as patient as he is cunning. It's for this reason in Ephesians 6, 11, we're commanded to put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Schemes, methodia, we get our word methods from that. It's the idea of, of clever, cunning, crafty, deceptive schemes. Verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So there's a struggle that's going on here. And Satan and his minions are tireless in their effort to seek advantage over us. And it's interesting, by the way, we don't merely wrestle against Satan. I mean, he is not omniscient. He is not omnipotent. And he is not omnipresent. I don't know if Satan has ever tempted me to do anything. He may, he may have done that. I, I don't know. But he can't be everybody everywhere at the same time, right? So he uses his minions, his demons, to help do this. And we know biblically that there's a strata or a ranking within his supernatural empire, the kingdom of darkness. That's why in verse 12, we just read, there are rulers, powers, world forces of this, <clears throat> excuse me, of this darkness <clears throat> and spiritual forces of wickedness. So you have this highly organized, brilliant, cunning, deceptive, wicked foe. An ancient, formidable foe. The rulers, by the way, speaks of, of the, the high order of demons, kind of the top generals. They are linked with the, quote, authorities in Colossians 2.15. And then he speaks of powers. This is another rank. First um, Peter 3.22 tells us that someday these authorities and powers will be subjected to Christ. And then there's the world forces of this darkness. These are the ones that, that infiltrate various political systems of the world. Remember in Daniel 10, he was described as, one of them was described as the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Remember, he held God's messenger, the angel Michael, back for 21 days. Michael, one of the chief princes that came to help. But isn't it great to know in Colossians 1.13 that he delivered us from the domain of darkness. Aren't you thankful for that? He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So wonderful to know that we are not incarcerated in kingdom, in Satan's kingdom, in his domain of darkness. Even though we know that demonic conspiracies are going on all the time in world government. And then he speaks also of spiritual forces of wickedness. These are demons that are involved in all manner of perversions. 
They spend their time in Hollywood and gross immoralities and in the music industry and pornography, prostitution, the occult, Satan worship, false religions. They spend much of their time in seminaries. Dear friend, here's the point. If you're addicted to pornography, know that demons are behind it. If you are addicted to social media, know that ultimately there's demonic activity behind it. If you worship the world's music, there's something demonic behind it. You must be careful. I remember teaching in seminary in Kenya. A large group of folks from a prominent seeker-sensitive church in California showed up. I remember being shocked at how immodest the women were dressed, and many of the African pastors that were with me were also shocked, and we had to talk about that. And later I was with a group of those young adults, and they started talking about a really cool rock concert that they had been at on, in an amphitheater on the beach somewhere there in California. And they were laughing about how some of their friends got drunk and threw up in the sand. They thought that was really funny. And I remember thinking to myself, here you are in Kenya, ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet these are the things that occupy your mind. What is going on? Now I ask you, who do you think inspired all of that that took place on the beach? All of the drunken debauchery that was associated with that. Was it the thrice holy God or was it Satan and his minions? And for what purpose did all of that occur to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ that sinners might be converted and saved from eternal judgment? Or behind that, was there something far more sinister, a way of distracting people and promoting the seductive pleasures of sin to prevent sinners from being saved. Now, I know some of you will say, oh, come on, pastor. The Bible doesn't say you can't go to a rock concert on the beach. I get that. I understand that. Obviously, you've got to be discerning. It also doesn't tell us that we can't drink. I got that. But we know you're not supposed to get drunk and throw up on the beach. We understand that. Okay, so we're with each other there. But, folks, don't kid yourself. I mean, this is where it gets so subtle. Don't kid yourself. Whenever you participate with the idolatrous practices of the world, you will unwittingly place yourself in spiritual union with demons. These things don't happen in a vacuum. There's something far more evil going on. You end up subjecting yourself to supernatural forces controlled by demons. Imagine the sexual immorality and the drug abuse and the vulgarity that was associated with that whole beach scene. Later, I was in a van with six or eight of those same people that came to Kenya. And they asked me what I was teaching, and I told them I was teaching soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, to these pastors. So they began to ask me questions about various theological things, and it became abundantly clear that none of them, none of them really understood the gospel. And some of them clearly were not saved. You see, this is how Satan works. Make people believe 
they are right with God, and then satisfy their lusts, the lusts of their flesh, with every imaginable form of idolatry. That's how subtle it is. I know believers who are addicted to reality shows, to immoral sitcoms, to YouTube videos that exalt stupidity, to horror shows that exalt demons and zombies and all of these types of things. May I ask you, who do you think inspires these things? A holy God or Satan, the God of this world? Who do they exalt, God or Satan and our flesh? Oh, dear Christian, don't be fooled. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. Satan and his minions are constantly observing the well-worn paths of the lusts of our flesh and laying within them snares of idolatry that will lead us astray. For this reason, Peter said in 1 Peter 5, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him firm in your faith. Now, I'm sure some are going to say, Pastor, I think you're overreacting. You're beginning to sound a little legalistic here. Well, dear friend, may I respond kindly this way? You spend your life, as I have, dealing with the miseries and the disasters that people have brought upon themselves themselves because of idolatry. Primarily people that profess Christ as Savior. You spend your life dealing with these people and seeing how they had a divided loyalty between God and Satan that which they would deny to the death, and then you tell me how legalistic I'm being. If I'm overreacting and sounding legalistic, then you explain to me what Paul means when he says in Romans 12:1, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but... Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove that which may approve the, what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. If you think I'm overreacting and sounding legalistic, then you explain to me what Paul said to Titus in Titus 2, beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age. You tell me what the Spirit of God means when he exhorts us in 2 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Verse 17, therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And again, you tell me what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 10. Flee from idolatry. And for the Corinthians, he's saying, don't think for a moment 
that you can join in on those pagan ceremonies and those pagan celebrations and not be influenced by demonic powers. There's a partnership. There's a sharing that goes on there. Just like a sharing that happens at the Lord's table. There's a sharing with the demons at this table. Don't think you can refuse to separate yourself from the, the, the immoral culture around you without somehow sharing in that which is demonic. And anticipating the response, notice what he says in verse 19. What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I don't want you to become sharers in demons. You see, they were saying, come on, Paul. I mean, there's no no demons. I mean, these idols aren't real. They don't even exist. So what's the big deal? And his response is basically, well, yes, that's true. But demonic powers are behind all that is happening here. All that is represented in that worship. Don't share in that. People will ask me from time to time, is it okay to attend a Catholic mass with my friends or to attend some other false religious type of church experience? And I would say, no, don't do that. Because behind that false religious system is something wicked beyond anything you can imagine. And it will influence you. So not only does idolatry place us in spiritual union with demons, but Paul goes on to say, number two, it subjects us to a supernatural force controlled by demons. In other words, Paul is warning that the whole system of idolatrous worship is inspired by demons. There is some kind of a a spiritual energy behind what is happening. So he's warning, don't flirt with demonic activity that's designed to deceive and to destroy your life. There's a supernatural force behind these things that appeals to your flesh in ways sometimes that you can't even see. Subtle deceptions that, that you can't even detect. Things that will begin to poison your mind and cause you to compromise, cause you to doubt. And eventually you slide down a slippery slope and you end up disqualified from effective ministry and service to Christ. Not only that, while you dabble in things you should flee from, realize that others are watching. Like your kids. Flee from idolatry. I don't want you to become sharers in demons. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. In other words, he's saying, are you going to sit at the Lord's table or at the table of demons? I mean, you can't have it both ways. You can't have a divided loyalty. And if you sit at the table of demons, you are going to eat and drink judgment to yourself. Beloved, let me ask you, do you really think you can come here on Sunday morning and seeing it is well with my soul, and holy, holy, holy. And then the rest of the week, seeing the lyrics of some vile, wicked, worldly stuff that's out there. Do you really think the Lord is going to honor that? Do you really think you're not going to be influenced by that? 
by the ingenious, seductive deceptions of the enemy of your soul? Do you really think that you can fill your mind with the things of this world that is ruled by Satan, a world that God has gone to such great lengths to save us out of and not be disqualified from effective service to Christ? I had a fascinating conversation with a man who was a fundraiser for a number of the prominent word faith preachers, both men and women, that we see today. And by the way, you would know a lot of these people are household names. And we had a private conversation. It's a long story how I got to know him. But he he bragged about the millions of dollars that he was able to raise every month for these charlatans. And I asked him, I'm curious, what's your secret? How do you get this to happen? And his answer was fascinating. He said, I appeal to lonely religious women, primarily over 40. Really? He said, yeah, we make our message appealing to women who are addicted to soap operas and romance novels. I thought, that is really fascinating. By the way, men fall for this stuff too. I'm just telling you what he said here. And this man and the men and women that he represent fall into the category of apostates that Paul described in 2 Timothy 3. Men and women who are treacherous, he says, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And he says, avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into, the, into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. I remember saying to him, but sir... I mean, you've got to know that these people are con artists. These are charlatans. And uh, because I've met some of them, I know some of them. I've talked with them personally. And it was interesting. He, he said, well, you know, well, that's not really any of my concern. But besides, who knows what the real truth is on a lot of these things anyway. And I said, but, but don't you feel guilty fleecing the, these, these lonely and undiscerning women? And what was really interesting was his comment. He said, not at all. I don't feel guilty at all. And here's what he said. They're going to spend their money somewhere anyway, so it might as well be us. No wonder Paul says, flee from idolatry. I mean, think of the progression. Here's here's how these type of things go. Here's how they go. Here's how they work. Satan comes along and he distorts the word of God. He distorts the gospel. He fills churches up with people that are unbelievers, that don't know Christ. And think his word is foolishness. And then he offers idols like soap operas and romance novels. And, and now it's a whole lot of other things. This was like 25 years ago when I talked to this man. Provide idols that will relieve loneliness. And provide some measure of, of fantasy that you can live in. Where you can have some pleasure and joy. And then offer them another idol. Offer them a false god who can be manipulated to make you happy for a small fee to the preacher who's going to tell you how to do that. And then call that God Jesus, even though he bears no resemblance whatsoever to the Jesus of the Bible. And then the needy and naive will end up claiming promises God never made 
to a God that does not exist. Oh, dear friends, flee from idolatry. It places you in spiritual union with demons. It subjects you to a supernatural force controlled by demons. And finally, it offends the Lord our God. Notice verse 22. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? You all know that frequently in Scripture, the metaphor of a marriage between God and his people is used to depict the the fierce passion a husband has for his wife. In this case, God and his church, his bride. And indeed, he is, as every husband should be, a jealous and possessive husband. He is therefore enraged with the most ferocious of all human passions if his bride transfers her affections to another lover. Oh, dear Christian, our God requires exclusive commitment, faithful commitment and communion with him. And for this reason, we have to flee from anything that even smacks of idolatry, lest we incur his wrath, even as the Israelites did under Moses. Those who practice idolatry will be judged as we read in Revelation 21, verse 8. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake of fire or the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. In closing, let me challenge you. Let me encourage you with three things that I hope will be beneficial Number one, dear friend, examine those areas in your life where you're compromising. Be honest with yourself. Ask yourself, which table am I eating at? Am I eating at the Lord's table or the table of demons? And secondly, commit yourself to private worship. Be in the word, be in prayer. Let that be a priority in your life. You remember Paul said in Philippians 3.8 that I count all things to be as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That needs to be the passion of our heart. And I read earlier in Psalm 34, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. He's literally saying, find out for yourself through your own experience. Do more than sample him. Take him in. Perceive this by tasting him yourself. And he says, how blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For to those who fear him, there is no want. Folks, that's where you're going to find real life. Not in all of this other stuff. And then finally, make it a priority to praise the Lord in your conversations. Boy, that's where social media can really be used to God's advantage, right? And your other conversations. In that, in that same psalm, in verse 1, the psalmist says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Literally in my conversations. 
When I'm talking with other people, I'm going to be praising the Lord somehow, some way. I'm going to manipulate the conversation somehow, some way. I don't care what Trump did or what Nancy Pelosi did. I'm going to manipulate it where I can praise the Lord. So that they can see what God has done and what he can do for them. Then he says, my soul, literally my inner man, will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. So make it a priority to praise the Lord in your conversations. And as you commit yourself to these priorities, your soul will find satisfaction in the Lord like nowhere else. Your joy will be in him. And the spirit will give you discernment. And your desire for the things of the world and the idols of the world will gradually be replaced with a passionate desire for the lover of your soul. And then you'll be able to sing that great hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Sing that chorus with me. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for being the one who has provided a way for us to find real life. Help us to heed what we've heard this morning. We all have these idols in our heart, things that can distract us and ultimately disqualify us from giving you the glory you deserve. Meet us wherever we are. Encourage our hearts with the truth that you want us to experience the fullness of your blessing. But we cannot do that if we have a divided loyalty. And Father, again, if there be one here today that knows nothing of what it means to be in fellowship with the living Christ, move upon their heart. Cause them to be broken over their sin and run to the cross in repentant faith and experience this day the miracle of the new birth. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.